Good morning, church. How's everyone doing this morning? This week, we are continuing in our second week of our new series, Ask Anything, where I sort of did a really crazy thing a few weeks ago, and I welcomed all of the, your questions. <laughs> Any question you ever had about uh, God or scripture, faith, life. And it's a good fit for Lent, I, I think, because it is a season ahead of Easter where we in the church acknowledge our own limitedness, our own mortality even, and along with that, sort of our own sin, and, and recognizing our deep need for God. It's a season that invites us to sort of return to God in the Easter season and to be restored uh, once again. And so it fits that we would also sort of acknowledge, as we talk about our needs for God and our limitedness, our mortality, to say, hey, we don't know everything. I don't know everything there is to know about faith and God and Scripture. The way 1 Corinthians 13 describes it is, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, kind of the age that is to come when Christ returns. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's a sense on this side of things that we kind of see dimly. We, we, under, we don't understand things fully, and so we can question and doubt and, and wrestle with some of these truths or, or the uncertainties that we have, because truth be told, a lot of our faith is a mystery. A lot of God and how God works is a divine mystery. So we can question and ask and wrestle, and I shared this last week, we are closer to God when we are asking questions than when we think we have the answers. And that's really my prayer for this teaching series, is that we might find ourselves close to God and the presence of God as we ask, as we wrestle, as we leave here more confused than you got here this morning, which may in fact happen today. <laughs> That in some divine mystery that's beyond me and my own humanness, you will somehow feel close to God <laughs> as we depart from here. So last week, uh, we looked at the first question kind of related to the sovereignty of God. Of all the questions that you all submitted over the past several weeks, all of the, most of them, by far the majority, had something to do with the sovereignty of God, the will of God. How can we tell what that is? How can we tell when we're in line with it? Why does God allow bad things to happen? That's the question we looked at last week. That question of evil, theodicy, I said. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful all and all-good, why does suffering happen? Why does suffering happen? I was reminded uh, recently of the story in the Gospel of John, of, of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. Do you remember him? And the disciples gather around and they said, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Who sinned that this man was born blind? Because isn't that what we do sometimes when we're trying to explain these things that happen and we don't know why? We say, oh, it must be some uh, punishment for something we did. And that was a theory I talked about last week of how humans over time have tried to understand suffering. Well, it must, it, it must be a consequence of sin or it must be a punishment. And I love Jesus' answer. He said, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I love how Jesus kind of acknowledges here. It's like, look, this is, suffering is just sort of a reality 
in this age. It just is, wasn't due to a consequence or punishment from sin. But God can be glorified in it. And in that moment of healing for that man born blind who goes off and then tells everybody about it, in the suffering and in the pain and the struggle of our lives, God can be glorified as we see some of those pieces redeemed, as we see God show up in the midst of them. Not because God causes it, but because God can redeem it. So I'm so grateful for one of you after the teaching last week who said, you know, sometimes I think we're asking the wrong question when we ask, why do bad things happen? Maybe instead of asking why, we should be asking, so what? So what now? Suffering is a reality, so what are we going to do about it? As a people of faith, how are we going to respond with love for our neighbor? To lament, to pray, to be in solidarity with those who are suffering, to tell the truth, sometimes to to be a, a part of the work of justice in our communities on behalf of our neighbors who are suffering. Maybe the question we should ask ourselves is, so what? What now? What now? And I say all that because this, as I mentioned, this teaching today is really going to be kind of part two of our conversation we started last week on the sovereignty of God. And I started by looking at Romans 8. These are verses 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We highlighted that a little bit last week, because that's kind of where some people get this notion of Everything happens for a reason, see? God's working it all together, like this puppet master God. It's okay, just trust the master plan. It's like, ah, it's really not what that verse is saying. It's more of this, like, divine mystery of how the Spirit collaborates with us and joins us with the Father and these groans and, and prayers of acknowledging that things are not right. And so we can lament, and in this beautiful sort of conversation with God, God works with those who love him to bring about that kind of redemption. But then it continues, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I don't know about for you, but for me, this presents a lot more questions. <laughs> what does it mean to be predestined? What does it mean to be elected? What does it mean that God foreknew some of this stuff? And this really kind of connected to some of the questions that you all had about the will of God and, and maybe even the human will and our, our free will. How does this all work together in salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Really good questions. I had to laugh. Um, 
I went back and referenced some of my notes on Christian theology, like uh, that Dr. Colonna Marie, who I quoted last week, um, just sort of, you'll appreciate this, sort of just like, hey, predestination, just like search. And it pulled up just like 15 different questions that people have wrestled with. Oh, you want me to share those notes with you, Micah? I was thinking that you could come up here and just tell us about your class right now. <laughs> just kidding. There you go. But I had to laugh because, you know, going to try to find some reference points for help, to be honest, and instead pulled up like 15 different questions throughout Christian, you know, sort of faith and church history that my professor just sort of presented to us and then moved on. <laughs> and I thought, you know, they send us to seminary thinking that we're going to get all the answers. But truthfully, we leave more confused than we've ever been. <laughs> we just have bigger questions, maybe. Or you learn where to look for some wisdom. You learn some resources or some skills of wrestling with some of these things, of where to look for wisdom and not necessarily for the answers. So, spoiler alert, what I'm going to share with you today is some wisdom, maybe of some traditions that have gone before us, not many answers. <laughs> And if you leave here more confused than you were, reach out, send me an email, let's grab coffee. I want, uh, there's, there's not much I can assure you today, <laughs> but there is some, there's some words of comfort uh, and peace uh, that, that I think we can find. So the question kind of for today is if God is in control, if God is all powerful and all knowing and all good, does God really determine or choose who will be saved? And if so, kind of the sub-question at the end, if so, how do I know if I am? How do I know if I'm in? Really a kind of a, a sub-question underneath this kind of understanding of like the providence of God. We use that differently kind of culturally. People that talk about fate or things were just meant to be. You know, that's kind of how we use it culturally. But in faith, we might refer to providence of God as this sort of like provision for God's people that he sort of God guides them in their journey of faith, accomplishing God's purposes through them. It's this sort of activity of God in the world and the reason why, you know, maybe certain things are, are ordained to be the way that they are. But underneath that is this kind of question of predestination. Does God really determine even if God knows, does God determine or control or choose who will be saved? And like I did last week, um, there are a couple of theories I will present to you. And the first, which may be obvious to some of you all, um, sorry about that, there's providence of God. Kind of underneath that is this question of predestination. The first one um, is, is sort of what, what people think about when you hear the word predestination is Calvinism these teachings of John Calvin, which kind of originated from Augustine. And the understanding there of predestination in the Calvinist sense would be that salvation is only available to those who have been elected by God. And the elect would certainly be saved. You can't lose that salvation. That is assured because you've been chosen. You've been elected. And kind of underneath that, there are different understandings of it, of sort of this like, there are those who God predestined to salvation, and then on the other hand, those God predestined to damnation. 
But then there are others that say, ah, a little easier than that. You kind of ease off that. There, yes, God elects and God chooses those who will be saved, and that is irresistible grace. You can't, can't shake it, and you are in. But God doesn't sort of determine or choose that all the other people who sin will be damned. It's just kind of passes over them in more of this like passive way and just kind of like lets the sin happen, but isn't like damning them to an eternity of hell. So kind of different types within this. It's associated with the teachings of John Calvin and kind of the Reformed tradition even still today. The Catholic scholar Thomas Aquinas would have held to this understanding it kind of being this subset of the providence of God. What he said, he said this, because God governs all things and operates in all his creatures, one must conclude that if any are to enjoy eternal life, it is because God has predestined them from eternity. That was Thomas Aquinas. How do we feel about that? I don't like it. I don't like it. It's great if you're chosen, maybe. So another theory then, a second theory that kind of uh, arose in the 17th century in response to Calvinism would be Arminianism. Jacob Arminius. Was that his last name? That was his first name. What was his name? That was Jacob. Well, listen, if you say it from confident, like with confidence from here, I don't, I don't know. Lots of questions. <laughs> Lots of questions. What's that? Jacobus, not Jacob. <laughs> My transliteration English over here. Okay. Um, so, but this sort of arose in the 17th century in response to these Calvinist teachings. And Arminianism, this would still be an understanding of predestination, but it's God's gracious gift of salvation is available to all. So it's sort of like universal atonement, like the acts of Jesus on the cross are good for all, but they can be rejected, right? This grace of Christ can be rejected. Whereas Calvinist in the first sort of theory would say, no, the atonement is only for those who were elected. Jesus only died for those who would, who would be saved, who, who would be chosen, right? No, we would say, no, Christ died for all people. And I say we, I'm, I'm showing my hand here a little bit, and I'll get to it. Christ died for all people. I know, so last week was kind of more unbiased. This week, it's going to be pretty obvious, but that's because we're Methodists, and we come from Wesleyan Arminianism, okay? Um, and I'm going to get to that. <laughs> So predestination then is based on God's foreknowledge, like God knows who will respond to him in love. God knows who will be saved because God kind of operates beyond our space and time and can see all, but it's not God's will. You know, it's not, it's not that God chooses and controls it. It's not an act of God's divine will, more of just God's foreknowledge. So that's where it's a little, because some would say, okay, well, God only predestines those he knows will respond to him like a loophole. That's not what the Arminians would say. God's sovereignty and human free will are compatible. In Calvinism, they're sort of completely separate. This is a separate concept from human free will, but for Arminians, it's, they're compatible. We have to respond to God's grace. There's a notable debate then between uh, John Wesley in his time, so several years after this, sort of Calvinism and then Arminianism, and the Methodist movement, 
uh, and sort of the evangelical movement in, in the Americas, there became this debate between John Wesley and his colleague and friend, George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was Calvinist. He held to the first theory, and he was teaching it, he was preaching it, he was passing out pamphlets, and John Wesley was like, whoa, <laughs> I disagree. And I would like to like envision them like having these like instead of like a dance off, like a preach off, you know, like because John Wesley started passing out pamphlets and he was teaching against it and it was intense, right? Like it got pretty fiery. Apparently toward the end of their lives, they like patched some things up and they remained friends, but like they disagreed over this, which means we have all kinds of materials out there for what Wesleyans think over and against what the Calvinists think. And I don't know why this matters. I don't know, but it's out there. There's a lot of stuff out there. It's a notable debate. So when you think of the first theory I presented, Wesley's main concern with that approach, John Wesley, to that understanding of predestination uh, is that he, it, it wasn't that he thought more highly of sort of the human free will. We sort of both hold to this kind of um, what we would say human depravity, what we would say is, you know, uh, people are in need of God, they are in a sin state. Uh, as Paul says, we can't even will the good without the work of God's grace at work in our lives. We would call that prevenient grace, kind of giving us a little measure of freedom to even say, oh goodness, I need God in my life. So it's not that they disagreed on, on that, it's not that John Wesley thought more highly of, of the human state uh, than Calvin or others who followed, but he was more concerned about the character of God. More concerned about what this first theory of predestination said about the character of God. This kind of absolute unconditional predestination he thought was inconsistent with God's love and goodness. And he asked, how would a loving and good God elect some to salvation and others to damnation? It just didn't jive with what he saw as the character of God. And that's because he saw sort of God as this loving parent. This loving parent where the, the parent's power over their children is conceived primarily as an exercise of love. Yes, do you have power and influence over your children? Absolutely, but it's motivated by love and care and compassion. John Wesley's image of God is this character of God as this loving parent over and against maybe John Calvin, who would be more of like the ruling monarch. The ruling monarch. If that's helpful, probably not. <laughs> a ruling monarch with the power over the subjects is an exercise of will, sort of divine will, divine decree. The fact that some are saved while others are not is explained just simply as an exercise of, of divine will. So John Wesley had concerns about the character of God and what it said about the, the goodness and the mercy of God. His second concern was on the, uh, the character of the Christian life. Sizzling. <laughs> he was concerned that preaching a Calvinist approach to predestination would lead some believers to sort of living without any concern of God's will or laws in their lives. So if you think like, well, if I'm elect, if I'm chosen, if I can't lose this salvation, if this grace I can't shake, then whoop. You know, you might hear the sort of the, uh, the maybe not fair, uh, which is a way um, oversimplified statement I'm about to make, would say, once saved, always saved. 
And so does that really impact how you live your life? Does it matter then? And he, if we know anything about John Wesley, we know that he was very concerned about how we live our lives, the character of the Christian life. Wesley cared deeply about this. And so for John Wesley, which you've heard me say this before, he called salvation this sort of lifelong growth into holiness, into God's grace and holiness, that it was the prevenient grace that is necessary for us to kind of be pursued by God, to go before us, to even awaken in us uh, uh, maybe a little bit of an understanding of a freedom, of an ability to respond to God. It's justifying grace that, that cleanses us, that justifies us, that heals us from original sin, which we would say, you know, with our Calvinist human depravity, we need to be healed from that. And then it's sanctifying grace that makes us holy, this grace that's poured out in our lives over time that we experience through the different means of grace, different ways, different avenues of grace, like works of piety and works of mercy, works of, these are John Wesley's words, that's why they feel kind of old. I never say the word piety, it's so churchy, but... (laughs) These works of, hol- like works of holiness, and we're not talking about a works righteousness faith. We're not tra- talking about earning this salvation. We're talking about the ways in which we experience God's love and mercy and the Spirit at work in our lives, allowing us to, to grow. And we know that we can experience God's presence and God- God's love through studying Scripture, through gathering for corporate worship, through praying. I know that I've experienced God's grace through works of justice and, and mercy and service. We kind of think about that as service today. When we go and when we serve our homeless neighbors or when we serve meals or when we visit those who are imprisoned or incarcerated or in the hospital, right? John Wesley used some of those examples as well. We can experience God's grace and grow in love, grow in love of God and neighbor through those works of mercy. So the Wesleyan Arminianism then is kind of underneath a, a new generation. But the, the sum, summary would be that atonement is universal. It is for all people. Grace is resistible and can be rejected. Right? Where God, Christ died for all, but, but you have to respond. God is actively drawing people to himself, but that grace is not coercive. Otherwise, Wesley would say, would it be true love if we can't respond in our own human free will? And the assurance of salvation is given only by the Holy Spirit, who witnesses directly, sort of as adopted into the faith. It's only by the Spirit that we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's only by the Spirit at work in our lives that we can become more loving and more joyful and more faithful and more self-controlled. And that's only four of the fruits of the Spirit. But you hear where I'm going. John Wesley would say that salvation is a lifelong growth into holiness. And so, yes, technically, salvation can be lost or or what he would call backsliding. (laughs) That's different than the first approach. But he would also say it's, it's a work of grace over time. It's, can we point to one place on the map of our lives and know, know for sure, nor know for certain about anyone? It's, we're not the judge. Maybe that's not our role. The assurance of salvation that we have comes from the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of faith and who's at work in our lives. 
Philippians 2, um, okay, there you go. The Scripture Way of Salvation, Micah, it's a sermon she's reading right now in school by John Wesley. There it is. He says, what is salvation? It's the entire work of God from the first dawning of grace in the soul till it is consummated in glory. Some scripture reference would be maybe Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, the work of God's grace. Work it out over time with sort of fear and trembling. Fear, not of like coercion of fear, but in awe of God and God's power and God's might. So this dispute between Whitfield and Wesley, this Calvinist approach versus Arminian approach, many say it's still a divide in the evangelical world today. It's still a pretty big divide. So we, uh, any Wesleyans or Methodists in this tradition, like obviously you can pretty much tell where I was trained <laughs> and what, what I was raised to believe in the Arminian approach. But this big question of how we understand the providence of God and God's activity in the world over and against or, or with this human free will, it's still a big question. It's still a big divide, even in the evangelical world today. Okay, and then lastly, this is a quick one. Uh, the third theory on sort of the sovereignty of God as it relates to salvation. Hold on to your hats, okay? This is a theory. You ready? Would be universalism. Just this idea, there's universal reconciliation, the view that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to right relationship with God. Christian universalism then would be this belief or hope in the universal reconciliation through Christ. This was what many people say, uh, especially if you believe this, would be it was an understanding of early Christians prior to the 6th century. And then this would be uh, today uh, traditions of if you, if you see universalist churches past any universalist churches, not Unitarian, that's something different, uh, but universalist churches. Uh, and really a movement there began in the mid-18th century. So this is more of like, one day everybody will be saved. And it really calls into question like, okay, but then what about the existence of hell? And folks within the universalist tradition are actually split on that. <laughs> not shocking. <laughs> not shocking, of does hell exist? Some say yes, some say no. The ones that would say yes, it does exist, say that hell exists, but not as like eternal damnation and punishment, but as sort of like a, a temporary rehabilitation stop. Different than purgatory, but kind of not. <laughs> They feel very uncomfortable with the whole idea that anybody would be damned anywhere for eternity based on their understanding of, of God and God's love. So there have been a few people in the last 30 years that have come out publicly um, and then been kind of excommunicated. Like this is still pretty, uh, a pretty good heretical thing, which is why I said hold on to your hats. But I'm trying to present to you maybe today that there are lots of theories as we humans try to wrestle with the sovereignty of God, this notion of salvation, and how does it all really work? 
this position would just have a completely different understanding of eternity. When will the new age begin? Um, when will the resurrection of the dead happen? Um, when and where even is heaven and hell right now? You know? There's a, I've shared this with one of you recently, but I remember back when we were going down to the family scholar house um, and doing Bible study, we were digging in and uh, we were having a, a really good conversation and, and someone brought up hell and, and this single mother with, with many kids, she said, listen, my hell is now. This is, I'm living it right now. And it's just sort of like, you know, it just, it's a different way of thinking about eternity and time as more of these like overlaps of ages and maybe not a separate eternal damnation of fire and, and hell and all of the things that really come more from Dante's Inferno and not scripture, these images that we have of hell. And so it's just a different way of thinking about eternity. All right, did I lose you? Yep, I lost you. No? Yes? Okay. In between. Only three theories. That's not true. There are a lot more. I'm only going to share three <laughs> with you this morning. So these questions, am I saved? Am I following God's will for my life? Can I lose my salvation? There are people throughout time who have answers for these. I'm reminded of those words at the beginning of the teaching from Abraham Heschel, who said, Abraham Heschel, who said, uh, maybe we're closer to God when we don't assume that we already have all of the answers. According to John Wesley, yes, you could technically lose your salvation, but you could also be redeemed again and continue growing in love of God and neighbor over time with the goal of our lives becoming more and more like Christ. Am I saved? It's not for me to say. I'm not the judge. We have questions about our loved ones. Are they saved? They were baptized in the church. I raised them in the church, but they're not there now. Or what will happen? I don't know. I don't think there's a way for us to know. except to cling to the promises that we have, the assurance, the only assurance, and this is where I show my hand a little bit more of John Wesley, the assurance of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit at work in our lives. And I pray and I hope that even those who may be not a part of a church community right now, can I, can I still see the Spirit at work in their lives? I can. I can. And maybe that's not for me to figure out or decode, maybe that's a matter for the creator, a matter between them and their creator to know their heart and their soul and where they are. And I do know that God loves them, just like God loves all of us here. I was reminded too of the questions that were asked of me at my ordination. I think this, well, I know the second one was, but this kind of idea of am I saved? Am I Am I in? <laughs> Have I been chosen? <laughs> the bishop asked each of us at our ordination, do you know Christ? And are you going on toward perfection? Different way of asking it. Different way of looking at it. I, I know Christ. And not being perfect that we might think of in our Western 
do-gooder society, but in a being like perfected in love. Yes, I believe I'm going on to perfection. I'm still a work in progress. We're getting there. We're working it out with fear and trembling over time. The person I was 10 years ago is not the person I am today. Thanks be to God. Here by the grace of Christ go I. That's the assurance that I can have in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though sometimes it feels like this, you know, you know it's, it's moving toward Christ. Am I following God's will for my life? You might ask. The will of God is a mystery. Why certain things happen and why certain things don't. And again, I don't think this is a mystery that we're supposed to decode, that there's some map of your life that if you just try hard enough, you will figure it out. But of sort of a broad stroke of the will of God being the salvation through Jesus Christ. In any way that you might feel passionate or gifted or called to join God in that work of the reconciliation of the world, man, that's exciting. Do it. Do that. That's where we as Wesleyan Arminians might feel a little bit more collaboration with this God's will and human will that, that we have been uniquely and, and beautifully created. You have gifts and graces and strengths and beautiful things about you that probably are God-given. You can't do everything you've ever wanted to do. We are limited. But there are many ways that you can contribute and join in God's work to accomplish God's purpose of salvation through Jesus Christ. And this is where I think it gets back for me to that John chapter 8 or 9. There is suffering in the world. There are questions that we have. So what are we going to do about it? It's the Christian vocation to respond in love to accept the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you to resist evil and injustice in whatever forms they present themselves. And join in with God and God's holy work. The vocation of love. Responding to the world and our neighbor with compassion, humility, and grace and the service of Christ. And I want to close just by sharing a prayer that often helps me in those moments of like existential crisis of some of those questions like, what do I do? Am I following God's will for my life? How do I decode it? <laughs> it's the prayer. This is really small, so I'm going to read it for you. It's the prayer of the unknowing, kind of referred to. It's the prayer of Thomas Merton. Some of you know it. I share it a lot in sort of pastoral counseling as well. Because if it helps me, I pray it helps you. And I'll read it for us now. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself and the fact that I think I am following your will. That does not mean that I'm actually doing so, but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do, you will lead me by the right road, though I, may not, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone.
may not always know exactly in a moment the will of God, uh, maybe, you know, exactly what we should be doing, sort of option A, B, or C, but I rest in the comfort of this prayer that is, I have a desire to follow God's will, and I pray that I do nothing apart from that desire. It recognizes that we all screw up, we all fall short, we all miss the mark sometimes, but thanks be to God for the grace of Jesus Christ and the presence of God who never leaves us. It's those promises from scripture I talked about last week as well. God is with us. God is at work even in the midst of our pain and life and all that we go through. And God will triumph. We don't know what it will look like. We don't know when. We don't exactly know how. But we can rest in that hope and in that promise that ultimately love will win. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much that even as we struggle and we wrestle and we, we yearn for assurance, we yearn for, for certainty and to feel like we have some measure of control in this life, we give you thanks for your presence that can comfort us and soothe us and hold us and intercede for us. Sometimes with groans too deep for words, would you meet us in these places of questioning and wrestling? Would you speak to us words of love as a loving parent? May we learn to trust you in all that we do. Even if we can't see the road ahead of us, would you see us and hear us as we desire to follow you in the ways of Jesus? Love you, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.